Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Over the next two weeks, I'm sharing two of my all-time favorite episodes from the Travel Diaries archive as we build up to our big season finale with Dame Joanna Lumley. And first up, it's Simon Reeve, who I first spoke to in August 2020. And to this day, if someone asks me about the podcast and like which episode they should get stuck into first... I often point them to this one. Simon's life story just blew me away. And, you know, it's hard to find someone as well-traveled as he is. So let's go back and hear from him now. Today, I'm joined by a guest who I've been hoping to interview on the podcast since the day that it launched. He's one of our most familiar faces when it comes to travel, known for his TV series, Tracing the Equator, the Tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, following the world's sacred rivers and pilgrimages, traveling the length of the Americas and deep diving into destinations like Burma, Russia and Colombia, visiting over 130 countries along the way. It is, of course, the adventurer, author and broadcaster Simon Reeve. Now, if you've watched Simon's shows, you'll know they're not your typical travel programs. He's known for digging beneath the surface of a place and telling the stories, both good and bad, that need to be told. What you may not know is Simon is really very experienced when it comes to digging a little deeper as he began his career as an investigative journalist and he went on to become a New York Times best-selling author all before he even appeared on our TV screens. Simon has undertaken numerous extraordinary journeys but none of them are quite as extraordinary as the journey his own life has taken. I think you'll be both amazed and inspired by it. So let's hear from the man himself. Here are Simon's Travel Diaries. Simon Reeve, welcome to the Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited. How are you? No, oh, that's very kind. I'm. Thank you very much for having me. I am honoured, and I'm all right. I'm just about okay. Uh, I've got a new little puppy uh, that is requiring oh. some some fairly endless clearing up after. What breed? Uh, she is a Belgian Malinois Ooh. German Shepherd cross, but just basically Belgian Shepherd and a bit of German Shepherd. But she's super bright, except she hasn't quite realised. Don't do your business in the lounge. Oh, no, you're at that stage. You'll come out the other side soon, I'm sure. I think so. <laughs> Let's hope so, for your sake. Oh, what a joy to have, especially after this kind of crazy period of time. It's amazing, actually, how how much dogs can bring to a family. I think so. Yeah, we've got a um, we've got another older, well-behaved, <laughs> large, enormous um, German shepherd uh, called Obi. Uh, but he knows where to do his business and is quite low maintenance in that respect. And I'm sure she she's so incredibly bright. She's watching TV. Um, she's uh, doing crosswords. She's going to move on to Sudoku. <laughs> She'll get there. She'll start doing some filming with you soon. <laughs> yeah, well, probably with significantly higher ratings, I'm sure. 
<laughs> well, honestly, I'm a little daunted for today's episode because I feel like we need at least kind of one episode for your life pre-TV and like <laughs> definitely, you know, two episodes to make a dent on your travels. There's just <laughs> so much to talk about. So I guess let's just get started with chapter one, which is your earliest travel memory. What would that be? I think this is probably the panic I felt when I could see my tiny baby brother eating sand on Studland Beach uh, in Studland Bay in Dorset, which is where we went on holiday when I was a lad, when I was a boy, when I was a, a child, year after year, sometimes twice a year. Believe that. And that's where we went. My dad saw an advert in a local freebie, I think, sort of little church magazine. And it was for somebody who wasn't really buying into the whole consumer capitalist economy and was just they had a they had a little get a tiny little house in the market town of Wareham and they were offering it out at a sort of peppercorn rent is that do we still say that just very very cheaply anyway to nice mm -hmm. people and and they never raised the price and so we went there and dad sort of booked years in advance for school holidays and that's where we went and we would drive to the beach every day and had a fairly idyllic uh sand eating hole digging cold water swimming holiday year after year a true british staycation absolutely yeah I, I, in truth it wasn't this was before the, the idea of um traveling abroad was really uh invented for the masses um so yeah, it's easy to to forget really how relatively recent planet travel arrived on all our on almost everybody's doorsteps mm. in one mm -hmm. sense or another. Yeah. Um, even if it's now been uh, that door's closed a little bit now, but uh, so we we went to Dorset. We we'd had no real uh, plan or idea of going abroad. Um, and I can remember when I was a sort of early, very early teenager, I can remember when some of the first kids at my school in West London started going on holidays to Spain and Greece. And then we had the first Spanish and Greek restaurants opening around us and everything got a bit more interesting and, and international. But uh, I didn't get on a plane until I was an adult and I didn't go on uh, endless foreign holidays when when I was a kid we went on one foreign holiday when I was in my teens which was a sort of uh, well it wasn't a sort of it was a camping holiday uh, into France and then Switzerland and just made it down into Italy where our Volvo estate got broken into and smashed up and we had to beat, beat a hasty, hasty retreat north oh, um, but it was all part of the adventure and very memorable as a result yeah yeah and and did that um give you a taste do you think for travel no not future? at all no, no I don't think so um it was so beyond my my imagination frankly I, I was a I had a very small life I think when I was a, a kid and a teenager and an even smaller imagination and I was just wrapped up in my own little micro problems I think and so I wasn't dreaming of of travel and I certainly wasn't doing anything interesting like uh, interrailing or or backpacking yeah, when I was in my mid-teens I was in quite a bad way emotionally and uh, when I was a little bit younger than that I was pretty naughty and was more interested in uh, shoplifting and, and vandalism in truth and mm -hmm. and then I left school I sort of flunked out of school with 
basically no qualifications. Um, I just went to a local comprehensive and and I had no money even to uh, get the bus to the job centre. So I, going going further was just not in my in my world. Mm. Um, which is looking back now, I feel quite sorry for that youngster because I could have had a lot of fun and I could have found myself a lot younger and and learned a lot more about the planet and its people but uh, it just wasn't something I ever thought was vaguely possible. Yeah it's interesting that you were saying about your kind of time in school um I know you've said in the past how a lot of people assume you know you said you were, grew up in West London but it wasn't like the kind of Chelsea of West <laughs> London <laughs> you had a a, a a tough time and and it it wasn't an easy period of your life and you've turned you turned your life around essentially is that right would you say yeah, I don't know whether I could claim I turned it around myself or whether I was just lucky and stuff happened that uh, I was able to take advantage of. I think um, a lot of us can underestimate how luck gets us to where we are. And I think it's it's gifted me a lot in buckets. I mean, for a start, I grew up in, in West London. So uh, I wasn't in some far-flung part of the country where it cost 28 quid in bus fare to travel to the local town. And, you know, that's that's the sort of reality still today for people. So I could have access to a, a wider world and, and wider horizons in the most exciting city in the world, even if I grew up on the periphery of it. Um, and I was lucky in that respect. And I was lucky that, uh, yes, although I flunked out of school and I went on the dole and I sank down into a very, very dark place and was a suicidal little wreck, eventually my dad saw an advert in a paper for a job people to work as a postboy on a newspaper uh, on the Sunday Times, I should say, because it wasn't just like a local, the local yeah. freebie. It was the Sunday flipping times. And uh, I applied. And again, I think a bit of luck played a role and I got a job. And that was the start for me. So it was, yeah, it was, it was certainly working hard and taking some chances when they came, even though that was quite painful and scary for me. But there was a lot of luck. Mm. So when you were struggling so much at that time with your mental health, how, d- how did you have the kind of gumption to go into a place like the Sunday Times and, you know, work your way up. Because when you're feeling fragile, um, the newspaper type environment, it's actually can be quite intimidating. I think you are, you're absolutely right. I think a big part of it was that I was desperate. Uh, (laughs) Another part, you know, you, you certainly then you did not get a lot of money on income support. And, uh, you know, I didn't even qualify for, for dole money. And it was, it was really dragging me down so I think I was desperate I didn't have a lot to lose I was a fairly blank canvas and I could sense a little whiff of possibility my mum came with me the first few days on the tube just to make sure I actually made it there because I was a real wreck and I didn't eat I think I was probably sick in the toilets with all the fear and the nerves about it and it was a it was a really terrifying thing to do um starting that life and that job so infinitely more frightening for me then than bizarre as it might sound walking towards the sound of gunfire on a front line now as an adult it's so easy to fail to comprehend how how debilitating and and terrifying even the simple can be when you are when you are really in a dark and, and low place 
But I think another aspect was I wasn't going in at a high-powered role. You know, nothing was expected of me. I was there to. I had to just get there at six in the morning, and be one of the little team that was sorting about twenty sacks of mail. So I could do that. It was a simple, repetitive, manual task, and I'm actually pretty good at those. So I could manage that, and I was happy with it, and I loved it. But very quickly, uh, people were nice to me, and. I started to sense that there was a bigger world out there that I could possibly maybe even have a tiny little bit of. And I started volunteering and saying to people, even after just a couple of weeks, do you want me to go and get some newspaper cuttings for you, a prawn sandwich? Can I do anything? And they were nice. You know, I was a kid and was clearly a bit significantly pathetic. And I think that meant people were, people took me under their wing basically and gave me a chance. Yeah. And we'll come on to in a moment what that led on to because it's a part of your career that actually I wasn't totally aware of and was completely blown away, the the pre-TV days. But first of all, (laughs) let's cover uh, chapter two. And that is the first place that you fell in love with. I think this has to be Istanbul. Um, It's uh, a city I've been to several times. Um, and the first time was quite the revelation, but it's just grown on me more and more as I've been there. It's it's all the cliches. It's the bridge between East and West, between now and the past, and it's so much more. It's this it's this melting pot of culture and people in such an obvious way and in such a secret, hidden way as well. And I think I really. Um, fell in love with the city and it you know, I'm a very uh, emotional sort of type anyway but even just thinking about it now I can project myself back into the moment when I really fell in love with it and I feel that that power uh, that powerful emotion with me within me even now ridiculous as it sounds I was in Hagia Sophia which mm-hmm. of course was extraordinary place of worship for for more than a thousand years and is my favorite building on planet earth and is is such an incredible piece of architecture that feels as though it was it was built or placed there by a more another alien civilization because we would struggle to create that that work of art now such a such an extraordinary majestic building that it is and i was in Hagia sophia and up on the upper balcony there there's just some graffiti carved into the stone on one of the balustrades and it says very simply translated Halfgard was here (laughs) 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 and Halfgard was a viking and Halfgard stood there was it in the 7th century I think in some almost impossible ancient time and he stood there as a viking who had traveled down from from Scandinavia down the rivers on their extraordinary boats. And he'd come to, to Istanbul and Constantinople as it was, and, and he had marveled at that incredible sight. And his response was, oh, so bloody human, was to put his own yeah. little mark on it. How God was here. I love that. <laughs> and if you haven't got a place that transcends time and place, there is there is there are few cities and moments like that for me where you just feel projected back in time but you feel that instant connection with place and a distant human ancestor of some sort and that very human desire which of course I haven't done myself but I don't I can understand why people 
outrageously take a selfie. But of course, we should string them up for doing it. <laughs> it's a shame that you couldn't kind of carve in Simon was here or did you secretly? I secretly didn't. I said selfie then. I meant a sharpie. <laughs> I can. I, I'm. I'm not. I'm not one for stringing up people for taking a selfie. Honestly, but, but marking their own name on the pyramids or or in Hagia Sophia with a sharpie. I think no, we can't be doing that now. Not seven. No. Seven plus billion of us. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't even see the buildings for the marks. Yes, it's true. So you know, if I Google your name, the second question that comes up is. Did Simon Reeve predict 9 11? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So, for those who know you primarily from your travel shows, that would be quite an unexpected thing to come up. So, can you explain a bit about the context why that comes of up? Of your strange Google search? Yeah. And, and whether you did? I don't think I did, no. Um, but I did warn that that group would launch apocalyptic attacks uh and so the the background to that in a nutshell coming at it from an interesting direction holly that i haven't approached it from before but yeah so the reason for the google search is that i uh after i've been working on the newspaper for a while um as a postboy i started uh working on investigations and I started sometimes working undercover on some quite hardcore investigations into arms dealing and organized crime and and international terrorism, as you do when you're 19 years old yeah, and I mean, you've been given amazing. a chance in life. Yeah. So I was doing proper adventure investigations and and it was one of the great experiences and experiences in life that really transformed me and and i went from being a you know terrified suicidal kid to an investigative journalist quite actually quite quickly and i think that is the power of opportunity and chance anyway mm. 1993 there was the first attack on the world trade center in new york by what seemed like a uh, at the time a bunch of Muppety amateurs, and some of them were, but they also managed to create a bomb that was uh, almost unique in its uh, technological ability, and it nearly sheared one of the support columns and nearly brought down the Twin Towers. And I started researching that attack the same day it happened. It was an enormous terrorist attack at the time. It caused more uh, casualties in any event in American history since the civil domestic American history since the Civil War, and I thought it was uh, as an investigator. I thought it warranted really close examination, and I carried on investigating it long after the newspaper lost interest. And at the age of uh, goodness, I was twenty at the time. 20. I thought I thought I could write a book about this. I talked a little bit more like that at the time, Holly, and <laughs> I thought I could write a book about this. And I I struggled to believe that I could have had that chutzpah or or uh, just gall, quite frankly, at the time. But I, I did think it and I did start researching it. And uh, over five years, it evolved to become the first book in the world on the group we now call Al-Qaeda. And it became the first book in the world on Osama bin Laden. And although that might feel a little bit like history now to some listeners, possibly, um, it it then began a, a long 
period of study of uh, terrorism and of that group that took me into some very dark and strange places. And my book came out in 1998, so obviously pre-9-11 it concluded there was this group and they were going to launch apocalyptic attacks. And yes, it's certainly the case that in America when 9-11 happened and I'd written the only book in the world about the group responsible, I was seen by some um, because Americans quite understandably were going a bit bonkers because it was a completely extraordinary situation. And I was seen a bit by some as some sort of prophetic um, character and people got a little bit weird about everything. Yes, in some cases but I hadn't directly predicted it but I had put together a whole body of information from uh, meeting and talking with intelligence contacts and spies and militants and some quite hardcore fundamentalists as well that there was there were going to be some fairly terrifying attacks and nobody had listened. Mm. And so you were called upon to become a talking head on tv shows and the news all around the world. Yeah so within Within a very short period of time, I think within before the second tower had actually been hit on 9-11, um, my phone started ringing and it rang and it rang. And I had uh, satellite, TV satellite trucks outside my supposedly secret address um, very, very rapidly. I think within 90 minutes, it was, mm. it was, a, it was a real whirlwind and... You know, I was in quite a fragile place at the time, in truth. My dad had just died and my long-term partner had just walked out on me and I'd watched the towers um, burn and fall and I knew a lot of people who were in them and I felt felt knocked sideways, backwards and forwards by it. It was, I, I was physically sick as I watched it on the telly and I really I really struggled with it I mean obviously many other people lost infinitely more than I did um in that and around that time but I was really put into the center of that because I'd written the only book and so I had yeah I had Russian and Brazilian TV crews following me around as well as the American networks and all the British ones as well. So yeah, I was pushed onto the telly to talk about what had happened. And I went from, you know, the, the uh, quiet obscurity of a, um, of a relatively young author and scribbler to being on the global, global TV and had to get my tie out and, and go on the, American networks and Good Morning America and it went on and on and quite quickly I started talking with TV companies about not just being the talking head as it were in the TV studio but actually making TV programs and yeah I've I've always tried to say yes if there's something interesting being Mm. offered even if it is a little bit daunting push yourself out of your comfort zone I think we all should and you know, then began my little telly career. You've gone on all these amazing journeys now, but I mean, that journey is one of the most incredible. It it was in truth. And obviously we're, we're only touching on what is years and years of, of some fairly bizarre and, and sometimes unbelievable experiences. And you, you know, when you're writing a book as well, particularly if you're on your own, you can get a bit carried away and obsessed with it. And, goodness I found myself in some fairly hairy adventures researching that book and then I wrote some 
some other books after 1990. I wrote a book about the Munich Olympics massacre in 1972, which was also an Oscar-winning documentary movie. And I wrote some books and worked on some books on lovely things like biological warfare and global corruption. Just delightful subjects. Did you go to the Oscars, Simon? Did I what? Sorry. Did you get to go to the Oscars? No, I did not. I thought you said oh. Damascus then. <laughs> it could have been either in this conversation, didn't it? But no, I didn't get to go to the Oscars. I was I was a lowly, a small cog in the machine. Um, but uh, I wrote a book that was done in parallel with the Oscar winning documentary. And uh, I just like saying Oscar winning documentary and yeah. having some, some tenuous connection with it. Of um, course. I just wrote the accompanying book, basically. But it was still a fascinating thing to research. It didn't get me into quite as many scrapes and situations as the book on Al-Qaeda, but nonetheless fascinating. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter three is the place where you learn the most about yourself. Was it in any of these scenarios? Uh, I have certainly learned a lot about myself doing on, on every adventure, I would say. And in in some quiet moments in the shower as well. I, I, I would like to think I'm not... Um, I'm not somebody who can't reflect on my own legion of weaknesses and occasional strengths and and try and give myself a sense of who I am. But I suppose the most profound experience in terms of that for me was in Gabon in West Africa when I was travelling around the equator, as you do when you're making a telly show and <laughs> you come up with a daft idea to travel around the equator uh and i'd contracted malaria 
which was a very foolish thing to do because I'd been forgetting to take my pills and it's not a mistake I've made since. No. But I was I was properly big sick as uh, a medic I've worked with has described it. It's little sick and there's big sick. And this was definitely big sick. And I was I was very, very ill and I was lucky. I was lucky because I was uh, frankly a white TV producer, TV presenter even, um, traveling in a tricky part of the world. And so help came my way and I was able to get a, uh, a a slightly unusual sort of treatment actually derived from Vietnamese sweet wormwood, which makes oh it sound goodness. as though I was nibbling on bark, but it was actually pills and tablets. But um, I took the pills and uh, I was on the phone back to family, uh, my partner in the UK, and she was saying, if you take the pills, it says here, World War Three will break out in your body within four hours. Uh-huh. And basically, the the pills trick the malaria parasites into attacking early, and your body can sort of deal with them. But yeah, World War Three broke out in my body, and um, I was very ill, and I had to convalesce for quite a while um, in this dodgy hotel in Gabon. And I had a lot of time to think about the journeys I'd been on up to that time, up to that moment, and the experiences uh-huh. and adventures I'd had, and. Um, uh, a long time to think about what I wanted to do in the future and whether I would carry on doing it. Because by that point, I'd made a few uh, TV series. This was back in oh, 2006. And I'd been making programs um, for different broadcasters, but in different ways for three or four years by then. And I'd had some proper adventures and I had some proper adventures when I was in my 20s researching my books. And I'd felt a little bit like I was... Um, the uh, the old cat with the nine lives because I had pneumonia and meningitis when I was a kid and I nearly mm-hmm. died all doing that and I had some other little experiences where I nearly died and then I nearly died when I was in a dark place when I was in my teens so I had a lot of experiences where I would basically end it by saying and then I nearly died <laughs> <laughs> so I had time to reflect on that when I had yeah. malaria and nearly died of that and I, I suppose I came out of it feeling seize every moment now, properly seize every moment, live for every single day and try not to waste a moment, be productive, don't sit on your bum any longer, get up and get out there and never let the fears and the worries hold you back because I knew that it was such a reminder of how short life can be and how we totter yeah. down that pier. And it's so painful, I know, for so many people now, myself included, to be held back and to be sort of on a leash with what we can do and where we can go. And I still think we can find experiences that are memorable. But really, for me, that time convalescing made me feel I want more of this. I don't want to retire not that that was a financial option but I don't want to take an easy road I want to keep experiencing things and keep racking up those memories Mm, I think that you can really feel that energy in all your programs (laughs) well thank you yeah I've had a big binge watching session of like your back catalogue the last few Mm. few few weeks with my husband which has been amazing actually we've loved it and I'm on it thank you oh they're just what what an amazing life and your programs always have a kind of socio-political or an environmental angle there's you know it's it's not a obviously a basic travel program and actually think talking about kind of mental health and 
and um, the fragility of your men- mental health when you were younger. Um, I wondered now, when you're making the programs, seeing so so much injustice, so many problems around the world, how do you cope with it? How do you process it when because there's a lot in in your programs? Ooh, I think I struggle with it. Um, I think it's one of the hardest parts of the 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 privilege, as it were, is mm. the fact that we turn up and often it feels like we parasitically to a certain extent leech away somebody's story or situation and then we leave (laughs) and they're left there and sometimes they're stuck there often they're stuck there how do I deal with that I think not brilliantly um sometimes there's uh, a good few tears and there's a little bit maybe of maybe there's a bit of uh of therapy that's going to be needed in the future but I wouldn't I wouldn't change that or deny it and I wouldn't want to not do it just because I'll have problems I've got problems ahead I think the way I make the main way I process it is that I genuinely pompously pretentiously appropriately maybe a combination of all of them feel that it helps a little bit make a bit of a difference a ripple on a pond Mm -hmm. maybe is what I generally say to people um it helps me to learn and if I'm learning still after visiting something like 130 countries then I hope our viewers are as well Mm. and I do think it can assist in our greater understanding I do I know it's pretentious but maybe I should just yeah. be honest about that I do think it helps and I do think it's oh, really everyone important learns so much from your programs well I hope so I mean obviously there it's still relatively shallow tv because all tv is a bit of a construct however much we try and we do really bloody try and everyone who works on the programs is really committed and I think you know I've said it before to people so sorry but I, I I do think they're the people that viewers would want to have working on the programs. You know, everybody goes the extra mile. They really try. None of us are talking with some suffering person in a godforsaken part of the world. And then we we don't, none of us would just turn our back and start checking the football scores. We're all affected by the situation. We're all emotional about it. And We're invested up to a point, yeah. I mean, we're invested in the sense that we're prepared to risk our, our risk things for it, and we're prepared to push ourselves to to be there. Um, but at the same time, you know, we get to we get to leave, we get to come home, and we're paid for it. And I don't want to forget that either. And it is tough. Where do you feel needs the most work? Is there a place that you visited in your recent travels where you kind of feel uneasy thinking about it because it's, you know, like far from perfect? Hmm, that's a really interesting thought. And the the places that I think of immediately are very close to home. I mean, I think I think of Britain. Yeah. I think of the United States. And I... I think of, I I feel angry and I feel emotional about uh, both places. And Mm -hmm. why do I think of those? I think because I feel we have the the great extremes. We have 
incredible human resources here we have we are we are bonkers and we are hilarious and we are frustrating and we are wonderful and and we're we're the luckiest human beings who've ever existed and yet i fear for the path we're on and the inequality that is emerging in our societies and i think we you know i arrogantly think that collectively for all our failings and for all the problems and the sexism and the racism i think we are still potentially a bit of a shining beacon to people out there i didn't think actually i know we are because i go out there and i talk to people in uh, around the planet and i know that they would give their um give a limb to experience the freedoms and opportunities that we have here and yet we screw it up and we yeah. we we don't take along our 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 poorest and our least educated on on our journey towards wealth and prosperity and and they linger too far behind and we leave too many people in long-term unemployment and we leave too many people by the wayside and I, that that upsets me so i think fairly close to home would be a good place to heart to start mm-hmm. because we are that example to other places and we we are seen still um as uh as, as a bit of a template um for other countries to consider and if the choice is between western democracy and in simple terms chinese authoritarianism um i think most of us would still hope western democracy would be the choice but at the moment i think we're losing that that battle because too many people see the fundamental failings in our in our society so i would start there you know i've seen of course i could say um long suffering africa as if it's a country you know but but there's immense opportunity and happiness and and wealth in africa as well as there is suffering and disaster um but uh, i think i would i i could say india where i've seen poverty on an unimaginable scale as bad as anything i've seen in the poorest parts of africa i could say parts of south america where the endless violence just is is devastating for the people and to to watch as an onlooker as well but i'm thinking close to home in the answer to that so yeah. i'll stick with it i i think that's a really interesting answer and actually if i was to think about my own answer for that question i think probably I would have come up with the same and it just I don't know during these last few months in particular things closer to home have felt fairly um I don't want to say apocalyptic that's not the right word but just yeah unsettling I think apocalyptic is completely fair you know I think it's quite good to hear somebody say that because a lot of us you know forgive me for including you in it but a lot of us now or you know middle class types with Mm -hmm. uh in, in the media, you know, you hear us talking and goodness, I've heard people on Radio 4 when they're asked what they've been doing during lockdown. Oh, I'm, I'm learning how to tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not the reality for a lot of people out there. I know exactly who that is. <laughs> ah, you're probably listening to the same one, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, but yeah. that sort of that sort of idea, you know, yeah. uh, if we're going to have that reality, at least let's recognise the gobsmacking privilege that that is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems quite strange then to move on to the next chapter, um, chapter four, which is your all time favorite destination. But let's let's kind of inject some. Um, I don't think it is. Do you know? No, I don't think it is. I don't because I think I think we're too reluctant often 
to to admit that life is light and shade it is yeah very it is true. sanity and relative madness frankly which i'm I can, i'm happy to use the term about myself as well it is the total roller coaster and you know there's no point denying that it is birth and it is death and yeah i've i've seen both in such close proximity uh from turning one way and looking the other and we've all experienced it ourselves so i have no problem my my favorite destination goodness me it is so hard to pick it really is because i would i would claim that there's the sort of style of travel that i'm lucky enough to to do which isn't just oh look here's another five-star hotel my the way i do it is looking for for the light and the shade glory and problems and it makes everywhere interesting it means you're never bored it's okay to embrace both sides i think don't shy away from it don't hide from it understand it learn about learn more about it and and love a place even more as a result so yeah your all-time favorite destination isn't necessarily a perfect uh, destination it's not. is it my all-time favorite i think is madagascar Ooh, it is wonderful and madagascar is so incredibly exotic and extreme in so many different ways it is like the galapagos in that it's been cut off from the rest of the planet for eons of time and life has evolved there in very spectacular ways and i have i'm i'm a lad from from acton shepherd's bush you know and i am lucky enough to have been i'm not a lad anymore but i'm i'm lucky enough to been have been to madagascar more than once and that is such a precious privilege it really is it's it's a mixture madagascar of nepal of vietnam of france uh with a little bit of added south america i would say there is nowhere quite like it the gendarmes there where the the kepis the 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 taxis are these battered old french two cvs you see the most extraordinary sights there you see you see on this island which is what must be 1200 miles long it's the fourth i think largest island in the world it's it's so eccentric it's so isolated you've got almost all of the reptiles and amphibians are unique to the island and there are just countless creatures that are absurd and magnificent there and the people the people are so unlike anywhere else they are such a mix of africa and the far east and south asia I've seen anywhere I think in the world and they have these fairly unbelievable uh usually eccentric belief systems and cultures that have emerged over ludicrous periods of times and they are just endlessly fascinating I think it's just a a mind-blowing place and that's kind of what I want in a in a destination I'm happy with extremes I can understand I think the desperate poverty that exists there and the endless deforestation which is tragic to behold but I see that as part of the wider spectrum and picture of the country and and the place and and it doesn't make me love it any less Mm, it sounds incredible what an amazing favorite destination and 
you have, as you said, is it 130 countries-ish that you visited? Something bad like that. I only started adding it up when I was really sick with uh, with malaria, in truth. I had plenty of time on my hands. <laughs> so obviously when you're filming, um, there's always tight schedules and, you know, a production schedule where you don't have much time in, in each place to probably hang out and, and just um, experience it without a camera. Was that mm. fair to say? That's very fair to say, yeah. Although sometimes it has been possible to stay on um, after we finish filming, but generally, no, we're not. We're not there on a on a jolly. We're we're doing stuff every day, but that in itself creates such an energy and an experience. You know, I mean, I I'm there's definitely I, I'm I'm a sleep in sort of layabout sometimes, but the requirements of telly mean we are up and we are out. And we are trying to spend the license fee appropriately. <laughs> yeah. So is there um, a destination I wondered that you fil- were filming in that you said when you were there, right, I'm going to return here in my own time to really enjoy this place because it is so incredible? <laughs> there's there's a good few. Uh, top of the list, because you're twisting my arm, <laughs> is going to be Bangladesh. And really? Bangladesh is is a fascinating, frightening, overwhelming, wonderful, life enhancing country and place and people more than anything. You know, it's so easy to forget. I think why so many of us travel and what we love most about being able to go on a journey. And I think for many of us, for me personally overwhelmingly it's about the people I meet on my journeys and it means I'm never bored of a place because there's there's always more of us and there's always more of our stories and Bangladesh it just delivers up endlessly inspiring humble wonderful human stories and souls and I've loved going there it's poor and it's packed but it's a brilliant place to visit with your eyes open and your heart and your taste buds and your soul ready to receive the overload of the experience. And it is where I really, really want to take my young son so he can see life as it's lived for billions of people on on this planet, which isn't always fresh water coming out of the tap. And it isn't always pizzas being delivered on scooters it's a bit of a struggle out there but i want him to learn about that and experience all the extremes and bangladesh in and of itself is a beautiful wonderful place wonderful so chapter five then is your hidden gem i'm sure you've discovered so many of them a place that you love that some of our listeners might not know so much about I would happily say Somaliland. Or was that one of your places that don't exist? It is one of my places that don't exist. So Somaliland is a unrecognised country in the Horn of Africa. So when you become a bit of a travelly, experty, nerdy, geeky type, and you think you know all the countries that are members of the United Nations, and you know the flags, and there's about 196 official countries in the world that but there are then dozens more that 
consider themselves dozens more places that consider themselves a country they've got their own flag and their own anthem their own government borders currency police force you know but most places in the world don't recognize them as a country and they often don't appear on a map and somaliland in the horn of africa is one of these places and it's in a very tricky part of the world the rest of the world sees it as being part of somalia Mm-hmm. which is uh, currently and, and was when I visited there uh, very, very dangerous. But Somaliland is a functioning, stable, secure democracy with women in parliament and traffic lights and hotels and is a very special place with, uh, yet again, very inspiring human stories to hear. And it's got some of the, perhaps the oldest Neolithic rock paintings in all of Africa. It's got some amazing um, camel curries. uh, And it's got an endless stream of really inspiring stories. And I love it. Some pretty good beaches. I think in the future, one day, it might be on some top travel lists. I really do. I was going to ask, how accessible is it? Well, in the current situation, probably quite tricky to reach. Um, generally, not too bad. Uh, you know, you can get um, you can get anywhere. You really can. You know, we're living in. We were, and I think we will get back to. I do um, a, a fairly golden age of travel. I do. I know that sounds bonkers in the current situation, but we've got the ability now to get almost anywhere and do almost anything. And I think if we travel with our eyes open and we put money back into local communities and we try and help protect endangered, troubled creatures out there by visiting uh, national parks and marine protected areas, we can really do some good with our travel money. And there's a lot of places out there that are missing that and are struggling massively at the moment. I think we'll start traveling. I know we'll start traveling again because it's very much part of us and it's very much part of our species. And we've done it for thousands of years in small numbers. I might have been a Muppet who didn't get on a plane and when I was a lad, but generally now and for thousands of years, humans have gone on the move in different forms. They've walked, they've ridden, they've cycled more recently, they've driven, they've flown we get places and we will do again. And I think Somaliland is one of them that I hope to go back to. Mm. So you've, you've mentioned your horrendous uh, malaria. You've, Mm. you've walked through minefields. You've been detained for spying by the KGB. God, you've dodged bullets on the front line. So many other things, I'm sure. Chapter six is your worst travel experience. What stands out to you? This is probably the hardest question of all, I think. And I, I'm I'm only really doing this because you're forcing me to. Uh, because I, I don't really have a worst travel experience. Everywhere has been... Everywhere has been interesting. I can think of a holiday, a very brief holiday I think I had with my uh girlfriend now wife um back uh just before i went off traveling around the equator where we went on just sort of posh b&b in the west country and it was such a terrible holiday because we got poisoned by we had food poisoning uh. and during one night all these flies kept crawling out of the woodwork and i had to kill <laughs> literally 36 flies during the night it was just ridiculous they they were all coming alive as the room warmed up 
and the the owners knew about it and hadn't done anything or told us it was just like here's a huge amount of money let us throw it into a pit and have a really crappy time so that was pretty bad but in terms of the sort of trip you're talking about i think i would if as you're forcing me i would i would probably say going to dubai was a really unpleasant experience because I saw a really dark side to the place and it really affected my enjoyment of being there. And I really struggled with being there as a result. And the dark side was visiting the dormitories where uh, the third third country nationals were working. I think they're called. So Mm -hmm. people who'd come to Dubai from Bangladesh and India and were working there in conditions akin to slavery, frankly, and their passports had been taken and they were all threatening to commit mass suicide. It was fantastically emotional and incendiary uh, uh, experience and atmosphere where they were. And they were, they were really in a bad, bad way and really desperate. And I just couldn't look at the place the same way again. So it was, it was on a different level of upset because I felt that they were treating uh the workers there in such a terrible way that i couldn't really enjoy the place i've been in other places where they're suffering of course i have and that makes me very angry as well but rarely quite so much with the with the country as a whole yeah god it's so hard you know i i was i went on holiday to dubai recently and i was kind of aware of of that and i chose to put it in a box and kind of pretend i didn't know so that I could enjoy lying by the pool and have a good time you know we've all had trips and times where we've just wanted to veg by the pool and I'm 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 in that as well and I can get enjoyment from that at least for at least for a period um but I think it's wonderfully honest of you to say you you put it in a box and we've all done it and we all do it I don't I don't think it's quite as black and white if you like as i'm as i'm making it sound with my account of of my experience there because we mustn't forget still that the the difficult truth is that a lot of people who go to work in what we consider we would consider slavery conditions a lot of those people would still choose that option given the choice of nothing or their own reality at home or earning a better wage in a, in a nightmare scenario abroad. That is the, the, the difficult reality. And yeah. that doesn't mean we should put up with them, them working and living in squalor or slavery. We should fight and force those places and companies and countries to do the right thing wherever possible. But I think there is, I think there is still that, that, that difficult reality. I've faced it and, I've encountered it and faced it and tried to learn about it in places like Bangladesh, where you have child labor, for example, as a, as a almost constant, often visible, sometimes hidden story of the place. But still I've had to come to terms with the fact that for many kids there, it is a, it is a working necessity because otherwise they don't, they can't fall back on a welfare state or an, an education system. Otherwise they starve or they have to go and work in a battery acid factory or do something even more hideous to survive. So I think being, I think keeping our eyes open 
and learning about the reality of a place is important. But I think in a selfish sense, we can also use it to understand how unbelievably lucky we are mm. to be living where we do at this time with fresh water coming out of our taps. And that can, for many of us, and certainly for me personally, has helped me to come to terms with what I perceive as the problems in my life and understand that actually I'm a very lucky person. And I think it can help us all to get our own issues and problems in really raw perspective. Mm, mm, absolutely. So we are on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, and that is chapter seven, which is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. There can't be that many places left, I have to say. Oh, there are. There really are. Yeah. And I think it's so easy for us to think that you know, I've met, I've met them. I'm sure you've met people who say, oh yeah, you know, I spent a week in Brazil. I've done Brazil. Yeah. No, you haven't. You couldn't possibly, you could go to, you could spend years in Brazil. You could, you could go there a dozen times and still not have done Brazil because the world is enormous and it is ever changing. And if you're interested in people, which we all should be, it is changing every moment of every hour. And, and so you can't possibly have experienced everything out there. So you can go back to the same place a hundred times. Yeah. So there's places I'd love to go back to. At the top of my travel bucket list is probably Japan. I would love to go to Japan. But there's so many more. If you're if you're waving your magic wand, I would love to go to New Zealand and Senegal and Mali. And I would love to travel more in the Arctic. And I'd love to go to the Antarctic. And I'd love to go to Paraguay again. <laughs> and I'd love to I'd love to keep traveling until the moment my passport is wrenched from my hands uh, and I'm still crawling along on my knees because it is so much a part of us. Yeah. And I think people who don't understand that aren't recognizing part of what makes us human is to go on a journey. Look up Otzi or Ertzi the Iceman, who was found in the Alps and, and is a time traveler from thousands and thousands of years ago, who was trekking through the Alps, but had everything on him that had been sourced from all around Italy and further afield, showing that we as a species have been traveling much longer and much further than people think and know. Um, back to the time of the ancient Greeks when carpenters went from Greece to India and claimed and, and talked and about how they had a great reputation working in India. People traveled long distance. They did and they will do again. Mm. And I hope to be among that among that group. I know that I'll be taken off the telly at some point because someone younger, funnier, cleverer will be will be put on in place of me of course they will and i i'll still no, be i'll still accept we'll be protesting. you're too kind but when the time comes I, it'll, i'll be okay about it and i'll have to start coughing up myself for these adventures that's okay that's how it should be but i can't i i, I can't i can't stop because it's it's how life should be lived i think i think and it gives such a wonderful store of memories yeah. to take with me and, and shape my, my own little journey my, as well. So Japan, I hope to make it there one day. My brother's been, he's a photographer who I respect and admire. And he said that for him, it's as close to visiting another planet 
Madagascar's been a bit like that for me, but I would, I'd like a bit more. So I'd love to go to Japan. Wonderful. Oh, Simon, thank you so much. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such an honour and a pleasure to talk to you. It's been such a joy. And, you know, I have spent almost our entire chat looking out of the window in a way I don't entirely do very often, but looking up at the sky. <laughs> I'm looking into the looking at, at the sky beyond. And it's been it's been a joy. When could it ever be uh, a chore to talk about traveling and 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 our our lucky traveling lives? Thank you for the thank you for the chat. Oh, you're, you're too kind. Thank you. Oh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Simon for the first or the second time. I'm sure you'll agree he's probably somebody who should come back on the podcast and do a second time around of his diaries given how much of the world he's experienced and how lovely he is to talk to i'll be back next week with another episode from the archives and then on june 20th put it in your diaries dame joanna lamley joins us for a whole hour of absolutely fabulousness here on the travel diaries Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.